Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Grant Sandground. We've got dueling questions. Grant and I go way back, but I have no idea what he's going to ask me, and he definitely doesn't know what I'm going to ask him, although I'm going to give him a clue at the beginning uh, of one of the questions. But first of all, uh, thanks sponsors, especially Upper Deck, uh, Grant's current employer, Meany, Tops, three great card companies that pretty much dominate the, the card company landscape. And uh, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, as well as ComC.com. So, Grant, you've listened to some other dueling questions formats. We, we worked together for, for uh, many years. These questions could be about that or anything else. There's, there's, there's no script, no nothing. And I let you go first. So first question, then it's my turn. The questions do not have to be related. Be kind. <laughs> All right, Jim, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. My first question for you, and it's a two-part question, so I'm, I'm bending the rules a little bit. Uh, no, what one, is, no, no one that knows you is surprised that that's a two-part <laughs> question. So what is your all-time holy grail card? And the first part is, what's your all-time holy grail card that you actually own? And what's your all-time holy grail card that you want? And why? Okay, probably my my favorite card is the, the Roberto Clemente rookie the Grail card. It's a Grail card that I have that it's you know personally autographed, not to me, but it's personally autographed of the Clemente rookie. And I really that's special because he's my favorite player. As far as can I stop you for a second? When you say personally autographed, do you mean you bought a copy that says to Jim, but it was to another Jim, or did you get oh, Roberto Clemente to sign the card in person? You've just given me my second part answer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's just uh, it's just uh, Roberto Clemente. He had a really artistic script, uh, kind of a half cursive, half print autograph. But I've got a, a Clemente 55 tops autograph, and that's probably something I, I like to show people. I'd like to see one next time I'm in Dallas. I want to see it. Okay, and uh, as far as not uh, for a Grail card that I'd like to own that I don't have, uh, oh, you know, maybe again, people listen to this. I need. I probably need to get it. I don't have, and I probably need to get a special Luca card. Not something you can help me with, I don't think, but Luca <laughs> Magic, when I'm having people coming over and seeing some of my stuff that I don't have a, a higher quality Luca card in a BGS slab, because I, I have my kind of my wall of fame and I'm cons and Luca is conspicuously missing. I, I, I like all the cards, but. That's funny you mentioned Luca. He's uh, by far my favorite uh, basketball player right now. And my daughter's got a huge crush on him. And uh, we went to a game last year, or actually we went to a game this season in December before the world went crazy and uh, we bought her a jersey and it was a great he, he's wonderful he actually signed for us in Goodwin Champions in 2018 he was great and we were very fortunate to get him what question do you have for me Jim okay what's something great about Upper Deck that people would not know if they don't work there but you know because you've been there oh that's an easy one you know, a misconception perhaps that people would have and because you were on the outside and then you got on the inside so what's something great about Upper Deck that you that you can reveal. I don't know if it would be a misconception, but but there, there is, and I'm sure if I sat and reflected on this, it'd be several things I could think of. But one easy one that comes to me right away is the good fortune to work for my boss, Jason. Jason Mosher is the president of Upper Deck. He was not president of Upper Deck when I was hired. Obviously, Richard was still alive at the time when I was hired. But Richard passed several years ago, unfortunately. But Jason got the opportunity to uh, ascend to the presidency, and he's been a, a great um, leader for us as a company. He's, he owned a card shop when he was a teenager. I mean, you couldn't ask for more for a president of a trading card company to have a background of owning a card shop when they were a kid. He's got all the passion that, that I have, uh, if not more, 
and he is a, a good guy, good-hearted guy. He's caring. He's passionate. Um, he he wants you to make the best products. Um, he balances it out with uh, having good humanity to take the time off and be with your family when you need to be, but then drives hard to make the best products uh, that we want. So I don't know people. I don't think people would know that just about my company uh, on the surface because people look at the cards and don't really look at the company and how it's built. And but Jason really is um, the guy who determines our culture. You know, and there's a reason I've been here for 12 years and I've been treated great and I'm very thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful for Jason's leadership. Well, that's cool. I mean, I really feel like the, you know, the, the company should, the, 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 the tone should be set as much as possible from uh, the leadership and it's not just the top guy, but that, that's, that's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Okay. Uh, that was my question. So now it's your question. All right. We're going to go in the Wayback Machine with Sherman and Peabody. How did the Beckett Hot List and the Gold List come to be? And tell us a little bit about that. I'd like to know, did you sit there by yourself and make it up? Did you, you sit there with Pepper Hastings and Fred Reed and, and brainstorm it? And was it more fun putting together the cold list than the hot list? Actually, you know, I haven't thought about this uh, ever probably, but I think the hot list and the cold list was one of the, this is interesting. I think it's one of the very first things I delegated hmm. because, and you being a data guy too, you, you'll understand this. It was not empirical. It was much more opinion. And not that I don't have opinions, but I really wasn't trying to impose my opinions, my subjective rankings on people any, any more than, 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 than the, the subjectivity of the price guy that occasionally got in there. So, so the hot list was, I, I, I delegated it. I, I don't remember, I, I may have got, it may have come in on some of our, our final edit discussions, but I, I didn't, since it was so subjective, I, I didn't really get as involved in that. And I really didn't think the cold, the cold list was bittersweet because it was the only cool thing that happened a couple of times is that people could make both lists. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Greg Jeffries or something. I thought that was, that was clever. But again, not being empirical, not being, you know, just, it just was a list that was provocative. We started out, well, let me, I'm remembering this. If you go back to the very first issues, there were some hot and cold lists that were included on the survey. And we published some of those in the early magazines. And it may have been that readers said, hey, can you summarize those for us? And so there may have been a little bit of an empirical thing in the beginning, but I think pretty quickly it was, it was difficult to tabulate for the, you know, when we were getting so many thousands of pieces of mail. But it was, it was stimulating to, to the readers. It was, it was fun, but some of it was pretty illogical. And that yeah, yeah. depends my sensibilities, but it's what people said. I remember I worked on many a hot and cold list in my time, more hot list, but then cold list went away the dodo bird, you know, a couple of years after they existed. But hot list, I remember we would internally discuss, is a card hot because it was traded on heavy volume or was it hot because it increased in value a lot, but might've been lightly traded. So I remember back in the day, we'd have long discussions about like, oh, this 86 tops traded Barry Bonds rookie card didn't really change value this month. It's, it's 40 bucks last month. It's 40 bucks this month, but it is the number one trading volume card by far this month. Does that make it a hot card versus I don't know, a Bo Jackson card that might have gone from $5 to $25, but maybe more scarce. Maybe it was a clear glossy from 87 or something like that. And it was really interesting. I was a big believer in, in trying to tell people, make sure you balance both elements. Don't just lean one way versus the other. But it was really hard to differentiate between two cards that were polarizing in that sense of may have, may have had strong data in both. But it, it was, like you said, it was subjective and it led to some really good discussions uh, internally. And readers liked it. Okay, my turn. As a veteran hobbyist, that's seen a lot and been through thick and thin for a long, long time. When somebody talks about the good old days of the hobby, what do you think they're talking about? When do you think they're talking about? 
Well, boy, I, I guess I'd have to. From your perspective. I'd have to put it in the prism of my perspective. The good old days of the hobby for me, I think they go all the way back to when I was a kid. I mean, I just had such wonderful memories of like just trading. I'd buy cards from the ice cream man that rolled through our neighborhood and trade with kids on, with my friends on the street and, and going to card shows when I was a kid. And, you know, like we had talked in a previous episode about Joel Hellman. I remember he took me to shows to set up with him in Las Vegas and I got to meet Bill Scourin and, and oh gosh, Lefty Gomez. And they had the most hilarious amazing stories that we'd have these dinners and for me those were my kind of original good old days i had a lot of good old days i had great times at your you know working at your company and i've had great times working here at upper deck but that, that's the earliest ones certainly come to mind okay your turn Question. okay this is the last one i got for you is there anything that you particularly miss from the 1990s era back at days that you look back i guess your good old days your fond memories that you miss and say wow that was really great stuff well you know i try to get off script on these things and people you know, I, I get different questions based on how well somebody's known me. You were you were there for some of this, but when I look back and I think in ninety in October of ninety six, I had a heart attack, and when I came back, things were kind of different for me, and they probably were different for the company. But to put it into a into a sports card context and a positive context, I I quit the the more day to day active pricing at that point, but somehow I should have known to. And I'm being very facetious here. I should have known to corner the market of, of rare Michael Jordan inserts from 96, 97, 98. You know, all of that stuff in that period of time, which wasn't necessarily the good old days, but you're talking about case hits. You know, that was the, that was the original goal. Well, not, not the, well, the case hits in some of those FLIR products and uh, Skybox and, 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 you know, all, all the companies had these amazing, super scarce things that you just didn't see. And I was not, I don't necessarily have regrets, but I, I basically, you know, if I turn back the clock, I think, why didn't I get more into being a collector? I think what I, uh, which I'm trying to do more now, but in those days, I think I kind of bumped myself upstairs to being kind of like an executive. And I, I didn't like that as much. I've much, I've been, it's I'm much happier doing collecting and being more carefree and not having to make a big payroll and, make a bunch of uh, uh, tough decisions. You know, when you're the boss, you never get any easy decisions. They only knock on your door when there's there's something tough. But I just think if I would have smelled the roses and 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 tried to be a, more of an advanced collector, which I had been before I started the company, that would have been, uh, that, that would have that been good. Okay, we may only have time for one more and along. This, I don't, I'll give you the option to, to take this one or pass it, but is there any decision that I made when you were there that you questioned? But surely there's some, there were some things that you disagreed with. And if so, either you were a great soldier to just kind of take it and follow through, or you know maybe I'm forgetting some things where we had some arguments about what was best. But you remember conflicts that we had of, of I, 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 told, I wanted to turn right and you thought we should turn left? I, I don't, honestly, I don't. I was really gung-ho to work on all the stuff we worked on. You let me write articles and I really wanted to write. I, I like to write. I got to write market watch. I got right, got to write features. I got to do the pricing. Uh, I don't think, like you said, I don't think we had big disagreements on on stuff. I, I can tell a story about an interesting thing that was a change uh, that was new for us is when we got into grading. That was a big deal. We had not done that before as a company, and I was tapped as along with Mark Anderson and Dan Hit, the three of us. I think we were stuck in a silo for six months, and uh, you you told us go make a grading company. Go figure it uh, out. And, and that was outside of my comfort zone. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I was aware of professional grading, but our goal was to kind of uh, build the best sort of machine we could with the structure 
you know, we, we worked on the grading system of four key grades together. All the, the uh, slab itself, I think uh, I, I always drove me crazy that there was not an interior pocket on a slab that would avoid the click clacking of cards in, in, inside the hardened shell. You know, working on that was a great challenge and, and, and work turned out great. You know, that was a big uphill battle for learning, but it was a fun challenge. Well, that's a good note to end on. We're out of time. I just want to say that in summary to that is that, you know, when we started grading, that was uh, a really big deal. It's turned out to be an extremely big deal for uh, my former company. And uh, it was so important. We put three of our very best guys on it. And you were instrumental. If people want to complain about the subgrades, it's Grant's hand grounds fault <laughs> that you can't add them up and divide by so, four. And, and the algorithms. Yeah, I can't tell you how long you worked on those algorithms. Uh, I, I, I had so much trust in you, but also in Dan and, and Mark Anderson as well. So And Wayne was a big and name. Wayne, and that's Yeah. Wayne, perhaps, Wayne, if you're listening to this, I want to say you probably were the, were the, were the most thorough grader we ever had. Unfortunately, that he, 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 he couldn't go fast. We theorized that Wayne ate a fresh lemon before grading every card. Now we really are out of time, but Wayne was uh, Wayne was a cog as well. So again, thanks, Grant. Thanks, listeners. We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode. I'm not sure it'll be as interesting as this one, but it'll be interesting nonetheless. So enjoy the hobby, and be back tomorrow. The man in the house of cards.